Most people, probably most of us, long for something that is really worth living for. That would make us want to get out of bed and start the day. That could give meaning and maybe even satisfaction to life. Bookstores are are filled with books that, that promise this is the way. Here's the way to meaning. And yet, so often the explanations, the answers are thin and don't satisfy. Sometimes we look for this in our work, in jobs. So we think if we obtain a certain level of success, if we climb this ladder or that. And it may satisfy for a time, but it's just never quite enough. And then what if we lose our job? What happens after retirement when there is no more work? For others, it's academic pursuits. That that achieving there, accolades there, maybe that will satisfy. And it might for a time. But it too is passing. It too is never quite enough. Some look for it in family, sometimes in parenting. They think it would be through having children. That is it. And for a time it does bring meaning, but then eventually the kids grow up and they move away. And then what? And so we wonder, is there something to give meaning for today and tomorrow and for every day of our lives? Is there a a vocation, a calling that can do that for us? And for today in our text, we'll see that there actually is a shared calling, a shared mission for all that offers meaning, satisfaction for today and tomorrow and for every day for our entire lives. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. You can find it in the Bibles near you on page 966. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible just so you can see the text in front of you today as we work through this. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 5. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 11. I'll mention those throughout our time together. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. At the back of the room, there's an information table, the stack of Bibles there. Following the service, you don't have to ask permission. Just go by, grab one of those, and take it with you this morning as our gift to you today. Now, if you've been with us every week, you may think, is Curtis confused? We've been in Matthew. We're not done with Matthew. Why are we in 2 Corinthians? I'm often confused on a variety of things. I'm not confused on this, though. So this is, we do actually intend to be in 2 Corinthians today, and that is because of this special day in the sending out of this church plant. So we step out of Matthew for 2 Corinthians today, then we'll be back in Matthew next week. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, listen as I read aloud the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, Christ's, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. You are a new creation, so live for Christ as his ambassadors. You are a new creation, so live for Christ as his ambassadors. We'll see this in three parts. First, we'll see our motivation. Second, our perspective. And then third, our vocation. So our motivation, our perspective, and our vocation. So first, our motivation, verses 11 through 15. The Apostle Paul lays out in our text two motivations that were driving his life and ministry, but they're not only for him, they're to be for us. They're for all Christians. We see the first motivation, verse 11, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, what does Paul mean by this fear of the Lord? Well, one aspect of it is connected to the immediately preceding verses. Look up the page just a little bit more to verse 9 and 10. Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So here we see that the truth that all people will face accountability, judgment on the last day before God. Now for those who know Christ, who've trusted in Christ for salvation, we will experience grace. There's still a measure of accountability though for, for how we've lived in this life, but we are secure in God's grace and this salvation that he has provided but for those who don't know Christ, who have refused the gospel and his grace, there is an eternal punishment. So the awareness of this should lead us to, to live soberly, an awareness of this accountability that we face, and with an urgency, desiring to make the most of the days that we have. Another aspect of this fear of the Lord is, is an awareness that however much we know of God and, and across our lives, we can grow in, in our understanding of God, his nature, his character, his work in the world. Still, there is much mystery to us about God. There's so much that we can't know for, for he is perfect, holy, other, infinitely different than us. So there's a right fear of God. We're simply aware that he is other but there's a second driving motivation in the text we see in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Now here, Paul's referring to Christ's love for us, not our love for him. So, so we want to get this clear. Paul is not saying, because of my love for Christ, I do this. That's not what he's saying. It is because of Christ's 
costly, boundless, overwhelming love for us. That's what drives and controls and compels us, his love for us. And the center of that love is Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection on behalf of sinners like us, as we see in verse 14 and 15. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So one has died for all. And this one is Jesus Christ, God the Son. And as a result of his death, this great salvation is available and life transformation comes. And to understand this text, we want to see that what is being held out is Christ's sacrificial work that provided salvation, and it is held out to all the world. But by this, he is not saying that all are automatically, universally saved. He's not saying that every human, simply because they are human, are saved. But he died for all in the sense that his death is sufficient and it's available for all who will. For all who will hear this good news and repent and believe and receive this free gift of salvation. As a part of this great salvation, it is by faith that we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And as Christians, we're reminded of this when we celebrate baptism. In the nine o'clock service, we celebrated baptism. And baptism is this gift that God has given to his church. And so we see that the pattern in the New Testament is the gospel is preached, the good news is shared. And people hear that, they're to repent and believe and then be baptized. And this baptism is the way that Christians publicly acknowledge they're trusting in Christ. So in the the original church, the way you told the church and the world you were a Christian was not to come to the front of the church and say, I'm a Christian, but it was to come to the baptistry and be baptized. That's the way we publicly identify with Christ. And in that public identification, there's also a story told. So this morning, we stood in the water, and I took her under the water and brought her back up. That tells a story. It portrays, one, Christ's death and his resurrection, but also this beautiful reality in salvation, how we are united with Christ. So we are buried with him and raised with him to newness of life. So baptism tells that story again and again. And friend, if you're a Christian and and you've never been baptized, we would love to talk with you more about maybe questions you have or, or, or maybe about what that would look like. You can note that on the connection card if you'd like to know more. You can speak with any of the the elders or the staff uh, as a part of that. Now, what was the driving force of this glorious sacrificial work of Christ? The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for sinners like us out of God's extraordinary love for sinners. And it is that love that drove the Apostle Paul. And friend, if you're a Christian, Christ has that same love for you. And I wonder, do you believe that Christ loves you in that way? It may not be hard for you to believe in general, Christ loves people in that way. Maybe you can believe that Christ loves people in this room that way. Friend, do you believe that, yes, he does love people in this room that way. He does love Christians in that way. But do you believe he loves you in that way? That you 
are loved by God in that way. Do you see that Christ loved you not when you were good enough because you weren't? None of us are. But you were living in outright rebellion against God, rejecting God in every way, and yet Christ loved you enough to go to the cross and die in your place. That is the love of Christ, friend, for you. And friends, because this love is based upon Christ's finished work, it's not based upon our behavior, not based upon our achievement, we can be secure in this love because it's not based on what we've done. But if it was based on what we have done, we could never be secure in it because if we have a bad week, maybe Christ stops loving us, but it's based on his finished work. So this love is unbreakable, always reliable. Even the most loving humans you have, they will always, will always let each other down. But Christ, this love is never ending, unbreakable. You are secure in that. Friend, do you believe that or have you lost sight of that? And friends, if we, when we really grasp this, it can transform the way that we live in this world. We are living from Christ's love, not for his love. If we turn that around and we try to live for Christ's love, we'll always be uncertain. We'll always be insecure. We'll always be worried. Am I doing enough? But that's not what the Christian does. But we live from this love of Christ that is perfect and secure. A free gift, friend, that you have received by faith. And if you're not a Christian, we would so much want you to know of this love of Christ. This costly, sacrificial love. And there is no other God who loves like this. There's no God who comes pursuing sinners out of love. Jesus Christ, God the Son, purposefully gave himself on a cross out of love. We want you to know that love. Now these two motivations, a right fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, we might think are somehow in opposition or contradict one another. But we see that Paul says that these, these actually two work together and change the way that we think about others and their opinions of us. We can see this in verses 11 to 13 where Paul says now he's not controlled by the opinions of others. He's free of those. He doesn't worry about whether they think he's out of his mind or not. And so for us too, friends, knowing the love of Christ and the fear of God can free us from the heavy weight of the opinions of others can free us from the daunting reality of the fear of people instead of the fear of God. I think all of us know there are certain people or groups of people that we have lived our lives trying to gain their approval. And yet it's just never enough, is it? Friend, there's security in Christ. The opinions of others can loosen their hold on us. And this brings about a new way of living we see in verse 15. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So now in Christ, out of the love of Christ, we live for Christ, for the one who died and was raised for us. We're set free from living only for ourselves. We're set free from living for our own fickle hearts. 
that are never satisfied, never secure. We find true meaning. So friend, what's the controlling motivation in your life? And how might your life be different this week if you lived with the motivation shaped by a right view, a right fear of God, and controlled by the love of God? So we see our motivation. Second, we see our perspective in verse 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul had experienced a change in his outlook, in his perspective about Jesus Christ himself and about others. Look what he says in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So Paul says we are to to no longer view people from just a human outlook. Meaning we're not looking only from a natural perspective. Our perspective is now changed because we have been changed. And because we have been changed, we believe others can be changed as well. And what has caused this change, look down at verse 17. One of the most wonderful verses in the entire Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Apostle Paul holds out this statement and the breadth of it, and he says, if anyone is in Christ. So this hope is for anyone, and it is for everyone. It's for all the world, any who would believe. Now this person must be in Christ, meaning they've turned to Jesus Christ by faith. They've repented and believed. But those who are in Christ, he says, they are a new creation. So this person undergoes recreation by the great creating God. And Paul expands and he says this, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So friend, the picture is here of complete transformation. This is not just an upgrade. It's not even a really extravagant renovation, but it is recreation through and through. The if of verse 17 helps us to see that this salvation is held out to all, to all the world, but it is not automatically experienced. We must hear the good news, repent and believe and be brought into Christ. And all of this holds out this great truth and hope to us. For if you're a Christian, you are a new creation. Every single one of us, if you're a Christian, for that's what we are, a new creation. Friend, you have been changed and you are being changed. It is certainly true that we're not yet what we will one day be. There is a day coming at the return of Christ when finally perfection comes. There's no more fighting against sin, no, no more breaking down of these bodies. So that day is coming. We're not yet there, but we're also not what we once were. Friend, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a new creation Do you believe that? That should change the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others. So if anyone is in Christ, means that the people around us, anyone can be changed. It means no one that you know, no human you encounter is beyond the reach of God's grace. There is no person in your life that is too difficult for God. So Christians, we should view every person as valuable with dignity because they're created in the image of God and potentially one who's a new creation if they were to hear the gospel and believe. 
So therefore, as a Christian, we, we must never think, oh, I, I know him. He's so cynical, so skeptical. There's no way he would ever believe. We must never think that. We must never think, well, well, yeah, I've known her. She's been opposed to Christ for decades. There's no way she'd ever believe. We, we must never think that. We, we, we should never say, well, I've seen the pattern of sin in his life. We, we, we reject that as Christians because all of that is contrary to the gospel. We now see every person as one who could be changed by grace. So friend, how are you currently viewing people in your life? Family members, co-workers, friends, fellow students? Are there some who, if you're honest, you've given up on them? You've written them off as someone who's not going to accept Christ. Maybe you prayed even for a long time, but you've stopped praying. There are people in my own family that that's a, a regular temptation to give up. No evident interest, no evident change over the years. Friends, as Christians, we repent of that. Let's reject that. Let's pray that, that God would make us a people, make us a church that joyfully engages and welcomes people no matter their life story. Because it's possible they might experience this saving, transforming work of Christ. The God who changed you can change them. And that is our hope. So we see our perspective. And then third, we see our vocation. Our vocation in verses 18 to 21. Paul helps us to see another aspect of this great salvation. Look down at verse 18. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So here we see the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. And what is so unique here is that typically the offender needs to go to the offended in order to begin reconciliation. Usually the one offended does not go to the offender. But that's actually what is happening here. We are the ones who have offended God. We're the ones who need to be reconciled to him. But it, it is not us going to him, but it's him coming to us. Christ came to us to bring about this great reconciliation. Friend, let's say that you had a massive debt, financial debt. Perhaps school loans, just theoretical in Boston. I mean, nobody really has those, but let's just say, theoretically, you had a very large, almost infinite amount of school loans that it felt like you could never pay. And you've tried to pay, but you've not made progress. In fact, it feels like you're always just going backwards. Well, the picture here is that you owe a debt you could never pay, but it's not that you then approach the one you owe and say, can I work out a payment plan? Can, can, I, can I figure out some resolution? Now, this is the debt collector coming to your house, the one you owe an insurmountable debt to, but showing up and saying, your debt is paid in full. I mean, imagine it's a, it's a Saturday morning. You're sitting on your couch in your apartment. Knock comes to the door. You go to the door. You look at a little peephole. And there is this debt collector you've seen before. And you're like, oh, man. 
I don't want to talk to this person. I have no answer. And I'm doing my way, doing the best I can, but I have no way out. You're tempted to not even open the door. But you do. You open the door. And the debt, debt, debt collector says, you, you know who I am. You know why I'm here. Or you think you know why I'm here. But, but I'm actually not here to collect your debt. But I'm here to share the news with you that your debt has been paid in full. Your debt is gone. As a matter of fact, it is as if you never owed the debt. Free and full forgiveness of the debt. Friends, that is what Jesus Christ does in this reconciling work. Jesus Christ takes our debt and he pays for it. Friend, what a glorious God we have. And we see how it's accomplished. Look at verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Christ made sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So for the sake of sinners and rebels like us, in God's plan of reconciliation, he made the sinless son of God sin for us. My insurmountable debt of sin, yours as well, put on Christ. He pays for it in full. Not only that, we are credited with Christ's righteousness. Friend, what a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, we would love for you to know this reconciled relationship with God. Now, I recognize that this idea of having a debt that you owe to God is, doesn't often sit well with us because we, we think of ourselves as generally good people. We think of others, perhaps, that, that aren't so good, but we just think that we're typically good. But I wonder if deep down, don't, do you at times realize or sense that something is awry within you? And then maybe you do owe a debt somewhere to someone because of the way that you've lived. For which you know, the good news of Christianity is not a payment plan to pay off debt. But it is a Savior who paid all of it for you. Every bit of it paid off free and full forgiveness, reconciliation with God. And from that, it wouldn't be surprising that we who have been transformed as new creation would have a new vocation in this life. And we see in verse 18 and 19 that we who've been reconciled to God now are given the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. And Paul tells us more, verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So in Christ, every Christian is now a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus and also representatives ambassadors of that kingdom. So we're all ambassadors. And what do ambassadors do? They represent the king. They say what the king wants them to say. They're placed in different spots, little embassies, to say what the king wants them to say. Ambassadors, good ambassadors at least, don't get to change the message of the king. But they tell the message of the king. And so we are now ambassadors with the message of reconciliation. And it is through these ambassadors, it is through you and me that God makes his appeal. And we see the, 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 the appeal, look at verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this is not some unfeeling appeal. We're, we're not some unmoved ambassadors. 
but we're ambassadors who are moved, controlled, compelled by the love of Christ who say to other people, we implore you, we beg of you, we want to persuade you, be reconciled to God in Christ. So God makes his appeal through his people who are new creation. And honestly, this is God's strange method. Through people like us, this good news is shared. Through imperfect, often fearful, stumbling people like us, this good news is shared. Christ did the reconciling work. Only he could do that. But he brings us into this mission, into this vocation. And we join this mission. We're to share this same urgency. We implore you. We're urging you. We beg you. Make the appeal that others would know the love of Christ because of the great importance, the urgency of life in this world. Both of our kids grew up in Boston and then went away to college in Oklahoma where my wife and I are originally from. So a few years ago when our daughter was going to go away to college, she worked at a little cafe in Boston. And, and when she was about to go away, she went to work one day and her boss said to her, Hannah, you cannot go to college in Oklahoma. And she was like, Why? It's like, there are tornadoes there, and you're going to die in a tornado. It's like, well, I mean, that's the general Boston impression of, of life in Oklahoma. There are a lot of tornadoes out there. But, but that was the idea. Like, there's great danger. So, so when our kids moved to Oklahoma, they had to learn, okay, what, what do you do when a tornado comes? So when a tornado comes, one, there are these sirens they've installed in every town, every city, that have this piercing sound that says a tornado is near. You, you can't ignore it, it would seem. Loud and long. And that's a valuable warning that says destruction is coming, seek cover. There's even an additional step. Because even though those are so loud, people strangely often ignore them. They're familiar with them. They think, oh, I won't hit here. And so there are times when the most loving thing would be to say, there's a neighbor next door who never takes these seriously. And actually, I know an actual tornado is coming. So what I must do is not just listen to the siren, not just hope they hear the siren, but I want to go next door and knock on the door and urge them, beg them, come to the cellar, the basement with me. Come, take cover. I urge you, I implore you. Friends, that's what we do as ambassadors. We have been saved by grace. We've been transformed, so we have an urgency to go and tell the people be reconciled to God and brought into this great salvation. But friend, my concern for some of you is that there's some, and we're grateful, who attend here regularly, maybe even weekly, but you're openly not a Christian, and we appreciate your willingness to let us know that. But you hear this message week after week, but it's as if you hear the warning, but you just won't heed it. Sort of like every week when I preach, I bring my phone up here and I start a timer. Maybe you've seen it happen, maybe you don't, but I start the timer, sort of a warning of when I need to stop. But as you know, I never heed the warning, right? I have a number in mind, but I just blow right past it week in and week out, sometimes way past it. So I'm, I'm, I'm dull to the warning. The warning has no power anymore. And friends, my concern for you is that you've heard this message again 
and again. We're glad that you have. And you're always welcome here. But friend, I implore you. I beg you. Don't just keep hearing. Won't you turn to Christ today? Receive this free gift of salvation. It matters for today and tomorrow and for eternity. And turn to Christ and be reconciled to him. So friend, all Christians are to be engaged in this vocation, ambassadors, seeking to implore others to be reconciled to God. Now, does this mean every person is a vocational missionary? No. But this actually does mean, bring meaning to every experience, every season of life. So every job, no matter how frustrating, you have some people who are there who need to hear this good news. Every classroom, every laboratory, every dorm floor, every street, every neighborhood now have meaning. They're not useless. It's not just trivial. We're there for a reason. So what can we do? Friends, pray. One, pray for yourself in this mission. Say, Father, help me to not be apathetic in the mission as an ambassador. And then pray for others. Pray for our life together as a church in this mission. I would also urge you, join together with others. This, this work is not carried out by individual Christians so much as it is individuals who are gathered together in life of a local church. So find a local church who, who shares this mission, who are committed together because we can do more fruitful work when we're scattered, when we're also gathered together in community. And then also think, plan about the people in your life and how you might invest in those relationships. So it might be a coworker you pray about for a time, just trying to have a spiritual conversation of some sort. Or maybe there's a a neighbor, you've had a spiritual conversation, but you've never had the chance to really share the gospel. So you're praying now and planning. How would you share the gospel? Or maybe it is someone you've had a conversation, you invite them. Hey, would you be willing to read the Bible with me? That's just what often what we do. Would you like to read the Bible? So you think about an invita invitation that you might make. It might be inviting to a, a Sunday gathering like this. And friends, because of the time of the year it is, you might just think about Easter. Easter is one of the two easiest days of the year, besides Christmas Eve, to invite someone to church. So maybe think about who you might invite. Say, hey, come to church with me on Easter. We'll go get brunch afterwards. But in fact is, they might say no. But you know the alternative? They might say yes. So don't say no for them. Don't make up their mind for them. 